welcome to the Enlorn podcast series, a series that focuses exclusively on patients now referred to as having nanorare mutations. I'm Stan Crook, and I'm the founder, chairman, and CEO of Enlorm. Enlorm is a nonprofit foundation that I initiated in January of 2020. Our mission at Enlorm is to take advantage of the technology we created at Ionis Pharmaceuticals, Anisense Technology, or ASO Technology, to discover, develop, and provide experimental ASO treatments to nanorail patients, and to do that for free for life. In previous chats, I introduced the basics of chemistry, cells, networks, drugs, how they work, and how to think about them. We also discussed platforms for drug discovery and how they differ. And finally, we focused on what we do at Enlorm and ASO technology. Today, we begin a series of chats about organs. Organs reflect how a complex multicellular organism actually organize their components to meet the needs of the entire organism. Each organ typically has several key functions and some secondary responsibilities. And to a great extent, the architecture of each organ reflects the main task that the organ has to perform. It is essential to understand the main responsibilities of each organ and how each organ meets those responsibilities to understand diseases and therapeutic strategies because they're based on what the organs do both normally and what changes when they fail. Then once you think about organs this way, I think you'll find it very easy to understand how organs can become dysfunctional and cause disease and Further, you'll find that it's very easy to understand how a disease in any particular organ is measured and how drugs to treat the disease might be created. The first organ system on which we will focus is the cardiovascular system. I really like teaching about this system because it is well understood and it's pretty simple. Plus, diseases of the cardiovascular system are still the most common causes of death in developed economies. And there are a good many genetically caused diseases of this system, some of which are rare enough to be mutations that we try to address at Enlorm. Today, I'll introduce the components of the cardiovascular system and focus on the roles of blood vessels and the very important component of the system, which is actually the fluid that flows through blood vessels, blood. The cardiovascular system is made up of a pump, two types of pipes, and a spigot. Obviously, the pump is the heart. The two types of pipes are the arterial pipes and the venous pipes. These two sets of pipes differ significantly because they have very, very different jobs. The spigot is, of course, the kidney. The fourth component, the liquid that flows through the pipes that I would argue should be considered an organ, is blood. Blood is a remarkable organ because it is never stationary and every component in blood is made by a different organ other than blood itself. I'm sure you already know the key functions of your cardiovascular system. They are, of course, to supply tissues with oxygen and nutrients that they need to function and then remove waste material from each tissue or organ and deliver the waste to an appropriate organ that can dispose of the waste. Which brings us to our first key points. Key point number one, the components of the cardiovascular system are the heart, arteries, veins, kidneys, and blood. Key point number two is that the main job 
of the cardiovascular system is to provide oxygen and nutrients to tissues and then help the tissues get rid of waste and then remove the waste from the body. Let's start with blood. Blood actually has many different functions. For the moment though, we will focus on four main functions related to the jobs of the cardiovascular system. In the lung, blood must exchange oxygen for carbon dioxide. It must then deliver oxygen and nutrients to all the tissues or organs. Then it must collect waste, which includes carbon dioxide, from each of the tissues and deliver the waste to the appropriate organ to remove that waste from our bodies. Finally, at the end of each cardiovascular cycle, blood has to exchange carbon dioxide that has just collected from all those tissues it passed through for oxygen in the lungs. After collecting oxygen from the air that you breathe into the lungs, blood then delivers oxygen and nutrients to all of the tissues of the body. Then, as blood passes through the tissues, it exchanges the oxygen for the carbon dioxide which the tissues have generated as a result of the chemical reactions of life. Finally, blood must re-exchange carbon dioxide collected from all those tissues for oxygen in the lungs. If that sounds like a cycle to you, you're absolutely correct. It is a cycle. It is the oxygen cycle. How does the oxygen cycle work? Of course, you know that you have hemoglobin and that it resides in red blood cells. Red blood cells are tiny, simple cells. When they're mature, red blood cells don't even have a nucleus. That means that mature red blood cells cannot divide and are, in fact, in the process of dying. That means that you must make many, many billions of red blood cells constantly in your bone marrow. Just as proteins do the work of cells, proteins do the work in blood. Hemoglobin is a beautiful protein that carries iron. Hemo is the technical syllable for iron. And globin just means a globular protein. Why does hemoglobin have iron and why must you have hemoglobin? Well, if you've ever taken basic chemistry, you know that iron has two ionic states or valence states. Iron can be a metal, which has no charge, or iron can carry two positive charges, iron plus two, or it can carry three positive charges, iron plus three. Now in the periodic table, capital Fe is the symbol for iron. Importantly, iron can be oxidized, that is increase the charge from plus two to plus three that it carries, or reduced, reduce the charge from plus three to plus two at normal physiologic condi conditions. And in that process, it releases energy. And that's why iron is so important to life. Hemoglobin uses iron and some specific amino acids to form its active center. Remember that oxygen and carbon dioxide diffuse very easily and very rapidly across cellular membranes. Of course, you know that oxygen levels are quite high and carbon dioxide levels are quite low in the air that you breathe into your lungs. So in the lung, oxygen levels, or that's sometimes called oxygen tension, are high, very high. And the oxygen you breathe in then simply displaces carbon dioxide on hemoglobin because there's very little carbon dioxide in the air that you breathe and lots of oxygen. Then blood flows to the tissues because the tissues are using a lot of oxygen for the chemical reactions of life. And those chemical reactions produce carbon dioxide 
carbon dioxide levels are high in the tissues, and therefore it replaces oxygen in hemoglobin. Blood then flows to the lungs, and the cycle is repeated. It is really that simple. Where you have high oxygen, you knock the CO2 off or carbon dioxide, and where you have high carbon dioxide, you knock the oxygen off hemoglobin. That is the cycle. So key point number three, a specialized protein in the blood, hemoglobin, supports the oxygen cycle. And this cycle is essential for life because we're aerobic, meaning we breathe air. Given how vital the process is, not surprisingly, it is very, very tightly controlled. For example, you must constantly make red blood cells in the bone marrow. Your body constantly assesses how many red blood cells are circulating in blood. And if the levels of red blood cells are too low, a protein, erythropoietin, or you may know it by its trade name, epigen, is made in the liver, dispatched to the bone marrow, and tells the bone marrow to get busy making more red blood cells. One of Amgen's largest selling drugs is epigen, and it is given to cancer patients being treated with anti-cancer drugs that are toxic to bone marrow for exactly that reason, to make more red blood cells. If you don't have enough iron, no matter how many red blood cells there are, they can't function in the oxygen cycle. If your body senses that the tissues need more oxygen, more erythropoietin is made in the liver, stimulating more red blood cell production. But of course, this doesn't help much because you have plenty of red blood cells, you're short on iron. And so your problem then is a lack of iron. So not only does making more red blood cells not help, but eventually the bone marrow wears out and we have iron deficiency anemia. Another good way to be anemic is to bleed excessively. And of course, in females, the menstrual cycle results in loss of blood every month. If blood loss is excessive, that also can produce an anemia that can be treated with iron. That's why most women take iron. Anemia means inadequate numbers of red blood cells. It is cool to realize that if hemoglobin shape changes, which it does in the absence of iron, it will then deform red blood cells. And so a trained person can look at your blood under a microscope and just by looking at the shape of the red blood cells tell that you probably have iron deficiency anemia. And in fact, you can look at red blood cells and make all kinds of other diagnoses as well. And I'm gonna to come to that in just a little bit. So hemoglobin is essential for life. And there are hundreds of mutations in hemoglobin that cause a very wide range of diseases. Humans are thought to have begun in Southern Africa and then migrate up to the Mediterranean and then beyond. Malaria is endemic in Africa and over the centuries has killed billions of human beings. A mutation in hemoglobin that protects or prevents the malaria parasite from undergoing its normal reproductive cycle protects human beings with that mutation from malaria, but at a very, very high price because that mutation causes sickle cell anemia. Why is it called sickle cell anemia? Because the red blood cells are deformed. Instead of being round, they look like sort of like bananas, at least to me. And so they're called sickle cells, and the disease is sickle cell anemia. You can also become unhealthy if you have too much iron or make too many red blood cells. If you have too much iron in cells other than red blood cells, excess iron is very 
toxic because it is so chemically reactive. Metallic iron is also toxic, and chronic iron overload is called hemochromatosis, iron in excess, and it makes the tissues red. Too many red blood cells can also cause problems on their own as well. Having too many red blood cells chronically is called polycythemia. Poly, too many, cythemia, cells. And one manifestation of too many red blood cells is the blood becomes too viscous and no longer flows easily. And therefore, in the very tiny arterioles and veins, the red blood cells can clog these little vessels up. And that then blocks oxygen and nutrients from getting into the tissues. The lack of oxygen and nutrients kill cells. Cell death in any organ caused by a lack of blood flow is called an infarction. When the infarction happens in the heart, that's a heart attack. But since blood flow is necessary for every organ, if blood flow is blocked, that organ will have an infarct. Key point number four then, the oxygen cycle is very tightly controlled. Key point number five, any reduction in oxygen carrying capacity of blood is sensed. And to compensate, erythropoietin is dispatched from the liver to direct the bone marrow to make more red blood cells. Key point number six, many diseases are caused by mutations in hemoglobin, including anemias, thalassemias, and thalassemias include a specific example, sickle cell anemia. And finally, key point number seven, both low iron and high iron levels cause disease. Low iron, iron deficiency anemia, high iron hemochromatosis. We hope you're enjoying the Enlorem Patient Empowerment Program podcast. We at Enlorem want to provide support to our podcast listeners the best way that we can. There's no better way for us to do that than to ask you directly. Do you have questions you want to ask Stan Crook? Stan will be taking questions directly from you and other podcast listeners and dedicating an entire episode towards answering your questions, AMA style. If you're a nano rare disease patient, family member, friend, physician, rare disease advocate, or you just enjoy the podcast, we want to hear questions from you. Please don't be shy. All questions are important and may end up helping other listeners. So don't miss a great opportunity to get your questions answered by the Patient Empowerment Program host, CEO of Enlorem, and the father of anti-sense technology himself, Dr. Stan Crook. To submit a question for the upcoming Q&A episode, email podcast at nlorem.org. That's podcast at n-l-o-r-e-m.org with the subject line podcast question. If you wish to be identified, mention your name in the email. If not, we'll keep your submission anonymous. We can't wait to hear from you. Now back to the episode. The fourth main job of blood is to respond to leaks or obstructions in our blood vessels. How do leaks in pipes happen in your world? Well, sometimes leaks are caused by events outside the pipes. The dreaded break in a big water carrying pipe that happens when some construction worker digs in the wrong place and the inconvenience caused are things most of us have experienced. Similarly, there can be externally caused leaks in the pipes that we use to get rid of waste, the sewer system. Blockage of pipes can be caused by external events too. For example, tree roots can obstruct water pipes or sewers. And as you would expect, externally caused obstructions are more common in sewers 
than water pipes because in sewers, they're carrying waste with much lower pressure than the water pipes, which are relatively high-pressure distributors of water. Externally caused leaks of blood vessels are typically caused by trauma. You cut your finger, you get stabbed, or you have an accident and you bleed. Anytime you bleed, you react as if it is an emergency because you know that if you allow bleeding to go unchecked, you could bleed to death. We'll return to this topic and I'll show you what bleed to death actually really means in physiological terms. You also react very differently to trauma that causes a leak from an artery versus a vein. Why? Well, because arteries are very high pressure pipes and blood will literally spurt out of an artery. So you know that you have less time to stop the bleeding before you bleed to death. Externally caused obstructions of blood vessels can happen when another organ or mass impinges on blood vessels. The most common cause of this is cancer. But sometimes normal organs can grow too large and obstruct blood vessels as well. Of course, in our body, just like everyday life, the low-pressure pipes, the veins, are more likely to have externally caused obstruction than the high-pressure rapid-flow pipes, the arteries. Leaks and obstructions of blood flow can also happen without external causes. Just as water mains break because the water pressure is too high for the pipes to manage, some leaks happen when a person's blood pressure is too high, causing a pipe to rip open. When that happens in a human, the rip in the artery is called an aneurysm. Aneurysms can occur in the large arteries, like the aorta, and are a surgical emergency because the person could bleed to death very rapidly. Rips can also occur in the tiny arteries that are called arterioles, meaning small, tiny little arteries. And in that case, the manifestations depend on where the ar arterial leak occurs. Any disruption in the supply of oxygen to any tissue in any organ will cause rapid cell death at that site that is no longer getting oxygen, and that is called an infarction. An infarction then just means cell death secondary to not getting enough oxygen, and it can happen in any tissue. As a general rule, the most common and severe issues caused by rips in arteries due to high blood pressure are in the brain, and those infarctions are called strokes. But an infarction can happen, as I said, in any tissue at any time that oxygen supply is disrupted. A more common cause of arterial leaks, particularly in the large arteries, but it also happens in the, in the smaller arteries and arterioles, is due to buildup of gunk in the arterial wall that over time then weakens the wall and then leads to a rip in that blood vessel. The gunk is, of course, fat or lipids, and you know all about these lipids, they're the bad cholesterol or LDL or other types of lipids that are problematic. When lipid deposits on the wall of an artery, that stimulates an inflammatory response, and that's what weakens the wall of the artery. The process is called atherosclerosis, which means stiffening, sclerosis, of the artery, athero, atherosclerosis. Pretty simple, stiff artery. Arteries with atherosclerosis are stiff. No matter the cause, rips of big arteries 
or aneurysms are surgical emergencies. Rips in the little arteries or little arterioles cause disruption in oxygen supply to a tissue, and that leads to an infarction. An infarction really is just simply rapid cell death associated with a lack of, of oxygen supply. Of course, an infarction in the heart uh, is a heart attack. Infarctions in the brain are strokes. But infarctions can occur in any organ at any time if blood flow is disrupted. Think about the challenge that blood actually has. It has to flow easily through all blood vessels. And those blood vessels range from very large, high-pressure vessels to very tiny, low-pressure veins. And so that's a really tough job just to do that. And yet, it has to be ready to instantly stop leaks because a leak could cause you to bleed to death. The main players in this extraordinarily important process are a set of proteins made in the liver, and they're called clotting factors, and a set of cells called platelets. I'm sure that if you think about the challenge here, you'd probably design the system that we use every second of every day. The very first problem to solve is to be alerted that there is a leak in a blood vessel, and you can't wait till you have significant blood loss to get underway to fix that. It's obvious then that there has to be an early alert process. So when blood vessels spring a leak, that leads to release of a chemical signal that tells the platelets that are passing through in blood to recognize the problem, and their task is to sit down on that leak and begin to plug it up. And that produces then this initial sort of plug, uh, just exactly as you would do if your water pipe leaked. Of course, you turn the water off, then plug the leak. We don't have that option. The leak must be plugged while blood is still flowing. And that really is quite a remarkable uh, task. So step one is that the platelets sit down on the leak. And then step two the platelets signal a set of proteins that are called clotting factors and made in the liver and circulate constantly in blood to get busy building a permanent patch made up of a strong mesh network fibrin that then traps more platelets, more clotting factors, and all kinds of other materials to produce a solid patch. And when you you cut yourself, you see the patch. It's a scab. That's going on internally, too. And with modern methods, in fact, we can actually watch in a blood vessel the blood flow and platelets and clotting factors respond to a leak that we can put in that blood vessel. Now, what are clotting factors and how does the system work to assure that normally blood flows smoothly throughout all the vessels, yet responds immediately to a leak? by stopping the blood flow at that site. Well, uh, the way we would design that system is that we would have uh, some proteins that are normally not active, but can be readily activated. And those proteins would be circulating all the time. And when there's a leak, they would become active and go to work along with platelets to stop that leak. Clotting factors then are exactly that. They are designed exactly that way. Clotting factors are all enzymes. 
Remember that an enzyme is just a protein that helps chemical reactions go faster. All clotting factors are proteases, proteins that degrade other proteins and sometimes themselves. So clotting factors are made in an inactive form, an inactive protease. And they're inactive because they have an extra bit of protein that covers up the active enzymatic center of those proteases. Such proteins are called proproteins, meaning inactive but easily converted to an active form. In this case, these proteins are activated by the other clotting factors that are also proteases. In fact, there are 12 clotting factors that are made in the liver. These clotting factors comprise a multi-step cascade. The first clotting factor is present both in tissues and blood, and you can think of it as the first responder. It then degrades the bit of proteins that block the active centers of the second clotting factor, and then that process repeated step by step for all the different clotting factors. Again, that creates a multi-step cascade. Using multi-step cascades for systems that have to be very rapidly responsive but tightly controlled is a very common uh, solution in biological systems because it does provide multiple opportunities to regulate the process. For sure, you want to be in control of when you clot and when you don't, and this is the system you use. Now, given how important this process is and how important platelets are to it, you would certainly guess that the level and activity of platelets are tightly controlled, and that's certainly true. If platelet levels are too low, a factor made in the liver, thrombopoietin, is dispatched to bone marrow to stimulate the production of more platelets. Why is it called thrombopoietin? Thrombo, clotting, poietin, stimulating clotting factors. Once again, one of Amgen's major products is thrombopoietin, and it is used to help cancer patients have less bleeding during chemotherapy because it can stimulate the production of more platelets that they need. Not only is platelet number monitored and carefully regulated, but platelet activity is also carefully regulated. Now, platelet activity is really simple. Platelets simply have to aggregate. They have to sit down and at a leak in a blood vessel and form that initial plug just simply by aggregating. So platelet activity tests are called platelet aggregation tests. Platelet aggregation can be caused by a couple of different chemicals that are made constantly in the body and readily available, and they include ATP and adenosine. Platelet activity can also be stimulated by solid substrates, such as what you would find in a blood vessel wall. So in platelet activity tests, platelets are asked to aggregate by adding one of those stimuli to the platelets, and then we just simply measure how fast and how well the platelets aggregate. Similarly, the production of clotting factors in the liver is very tightly controlled. The entire pathway that leads to the production of all those clotting factors is controlled as a unit, as, as the entire pathway. And, and that's the case for many critical pathways. Uh, we regulate not just the individual components of the pathway, but the entire pathway itself. The production of proteins that are necessary for the performance of blood and other organs is one of the two main jobs that the liver does. 
Of course, the other job uh, that the liver does is the exact opposite. It filters venous blood and extracts waste and potentially toxic materials from blood, metabolizes them, and then excretes them in, in bile. So by now you know that platelet number, platelet activity, platelet levels, and the levels of clotting factors are carefully regulated. And as we've seen time and time again, these complicated, highly regulated systems can break down. Fortunately today, when there are problems in the clotting system, we have a good many uh, drugs that we can use to, to treat patients with these problems. One uh, interesting way the system can break down is that on occasion a patient can make antibodies that actually recognize their own platelets rather than the foreign invaders that antibodies are supposed to recognize. Now, that can lead to the consumption of platelets so severe that the bone marrow can't make up for it and it is called thrombocytopenia, thromboplatelets, cytopenia, cell deficiency, thrombocytopenia. Such antibody-caused reductions in platelet levels can be quite severe and can even be fatal. Antibody-caused platelet reduction uh, can also be very difficult to treat and sometimes requires the use of immunosuppressive agents like steroids. Similarly, production of clotting factors in the liver can fail. Untreated loss of clotting factors, as you would expect, can lead to bleeding. If you bleed in the wrong place at the wrong time in the wrong way, that bleeding can be fatal. People with diseases that make the liver dysfunctional often have bleeding problems and sometimes bleed to death. Alcohol and other toxic chemicals destroy liver cells and over time the liver is then unable to make the clotting factors that the patient needs. And so that's why many people with end-stage liver disease have a tendency to bleed. If you starve or have a terrible diet, clotting factors can't be made, and once again, the manifestation is bleeding. Clotting factors can have mutations that make them not work or work in an uncontrolled fashion. Hemophilias are often caused by mutations that prevent the production of clotting factors or cause them not to work. Other mutations can cause too much clotting. Often, these issues manifest themselves when blood flow is slow, that is, in the deep vein. And a patient then may have a deep vein thrombosis. And thrombosis then, once again, just means clotting. Blood clots in deep veins, and this usually happens in the legs, are dangerous because uh, they can damage local tissue, but even more so uh, because they, they can break apart. And then these small little fragments of clots can travel in blood until they encounter a small enough vessel that they clog it up. And since they're in the veins, the first organ that they encounter that really, really matters is the lung. And, but they can also get trapped in the heart. And even though these vents have different names, they really represent the exact same process and the exact same problem. A clot that blocks a little blood vessel leading to any tissue will disrupt the flow of oxygen and cause those cells in that area to die, and that's called an infarction. That event in the lung is called a pulmonary embolus. It is a medical emergency. And the same event that happens in the heart is called an infarction 
or a heart attack, another medical emergency. Another source of fragments of clots or clot-like material happens in patients with atherosclerosis. As I said, if you have elevated bad cholesterol or, or other types of bad lipids, the lipids accumulate on the surface of blood vessel walls. An individual site of accumulated lipids, platelets, and other inflammatory processes and materials is called a plaque because that's what it looks like. It looks like a plaque. And the medical term for a plaque is an atheroma, a thrombus-like spot on a vessel wall. The whole process is called thromboembolic disease. Thrombo, a blood clot, embolic, a piece of clot, breaks off and travels in blood till it gets trapped in a, in a tiny little blood vessel. So key point number eight, blood must flow easily, but it has to be able to respond to leaks immediately. And you can't shut the water off. You have to do it while you're still providing blood to the body. Key point number nine, clotting is managed by clotting factors made in the liver and clotting factors are proteases that are, are purposely made to be inactive, but when needed, the protease activity of the clotting factors leads to activation of the clotting system. Key point number 10, a second major component of, clot, of the clotting system is a set of cells called platelets. And key point number 11, when clotting is not properly regulated, serious, often fatal diseases are caused. Before we close the books on blood, let me describe in general physiological terms what bleeding to death actually means. Sudden loss of blood generates an emergency response in the body just as it would generate a 911 call. The sudden loss of blood causes a rapid reduction in blood pressure. That means that blood returning to the heart from the veins is reduced. That then means that the right atrium doesn't fill as well as it should, and that means it can't then fill the right ventricle. And since the right ventricle isn't getting enough blood, less blood is pumped to the lungs to be oxygenated. So now you're in oxygen deficit. Then all of that problem accumulates on the left heart. Less oxygenated blood enters the left atrium and as a consequence the left ventricle doesn't fill correctly and so now you can't pump the blood you need uh, to the systemic circulation. All of that then is sensed by the autonomic nervous system and it responds by increasing adrenergic activity which means more norepinephrine or noradrenaline is released. This causes a very significant increase in heart rate contraction of the major arteries, and dilation of the tiny little arterioles in tissues, which is all designed to get more oxygen to more tissues, but of course it fails. And then eventually, because all of this is going on, a fatal arrhythmia in the heart occurs and the patient dies unless something is done to stop that process. Before we finish today, I do want to just sum up some of the classes of drugs that are used. Blood itself is a drug and it is given any time blood levels are seriously low. Blood cells can be drugs. Red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets are all often administered when any of those cells are too low. Anemia treatments include blood, iron, 
and erythropoietin, and the thalassemias, like sickle cell anemia, are treated with things like urea because one of the problems they have is blood flow is disrupted because of the viscosity of the blood being wrong. Low platelet levels are often treated with thrombopoietin or the administration of platelets. Hemochromatosis is often treated with chelator-type drugs. These are chemicals that bind iron tightly and then are excreted in urine, you know, extracting the iron from tissues and getting it rid of it. Thromboembolic diseases are often treated with blood thinners. Blood thinners absolutely do not make blood thinner. They reduce the ability of blood to form clots. The oldest drug used to reduce clotting is Coumarin, the rat poison. It works by preventing the the liver from making clotting factors, and it has a therapeutic index of one. You'll remember from one of the earlier chats that we had that a therapeutic index of one means that you have as high a likelihood of having a side effect as you do of having a benefit. And so this drug is not used very often these days because there are far better drugs that reduce only key clotting factors and and therefore are safer. In development, there's some very exciting drugs like the Ionis Factor 11 drug that may prove to be much better than even the drugs that we have today. Of course, the goal is to prevent unwanted clotting and yet allow the body to clot when it needs to. There are a good many agents that alter the ability of platelets to form clots. And of course, the granddaddy of them all is aspirin. And finally, there are lipid-lowering drugs like statins used to prevent atherosclerosis. We'll discuss those at another time when we're talking about that sort of problem. So in conclusion, or to wrap up, blood serves many functions. We've only touched on a few of those functions. But we'll get to those other functions in other chats that we have, say, for example, in how you handle infectious diseases. Now are well-grounded in the flow of blood uh, and how necessary that is. We'll then move on to deal with the pump, the pipes, and the spigot, the heart, the arteries, the veins, and the kidney. And Lorem is a nonprofit committed to discovering and providing personalized experimental treatments for free for life to patients with genetic diseases that affect 1 to 30 patients worldwide, referred to by Enlorem as nano rare. Many of these patients progress and die without ever achieving a diagnosis. This is where Enlorem comes in. They do the impossible by providing hope, and for those that they can help, free lifetime treatment. For more information about Enlorem or today's episode, visit enlorem.org. Any questions can be sent into podcast at enlorem.org. Search Enlorem on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook to connect with us. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This truly helps us climb the charts and allows others to find the show. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Stan Crook. Our videographer is John Magnuson of Mighty One Productions. Our producers are John Magnuson and Kira Deneen of DNA Today. Thank you for listening.